Amen. You set the 50-minute for me, please. We're going to need it. A few weeks ago, I attended a pastor's conference and had the great privilege of listening to Dr. Bruce Ware speak. And he spoke that morning about the dignity and the depravity of man. It was excellent. But what I liked is Dr. Ware shared a lot of his own personal stories and personal testimonies, made it really real. And he shared about a book that really changed his life. He was a believer at the time, but reading this book just ignited in him really a vision of God and, and really changed the course of his walk with Christ. The author of that book was a man named A.W. Tozier. One of Tozier's most influential books is called The Knowledge of the Holy. The first sentence of this book says as follows. Listen carefully. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on to say, quotes, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. Nothing is more important than a right view about God. Feelings may betray us, but will the object of our faith, will God betray us? We must not trust in a God of our own imagination, born out of our feelings, but we must trust in the God who is revealed to us in his word. And this was the decision, this was the choice that was put before the people of Israel 1,400 years before Christ at the time of Moses. And this is the decision, this is the choice that is placed before each and every one of us in this church. Are we going to trust God or are we going to trust our feelings? Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Find chapter 1, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I want you to find and, and find yourself at verse 19 as we continue to work through this book. Just a reminder for everybody, at this point, remember that this whole book of Deuteronomy is really a series of three sermons that Moses preached, and he preached to the second generation of Israel, right? Mom and dad, the first generation for the rebellion over 40 years of wandering in the wilderness had died in the wilderness and they were gone. And Moses is now preaching to the next generation of Israel who's poised just beyond the, just beyond the Jordan River. Jericho's on the other side. They're going to enter on the north side. And they're poised to take the promised land. And Moses is preaching. And he has three sermons. The first sermon is a sermon about the past. He's stirring them, them up by way of reminder. All the way through chapter 4, he's stirring them up and he's going to remind them about their sin. He's going to, but more than that, 
He's going to remind them about their God, and he's going to call them to trust in the God of the promises. And so we pick up the Sermon of Remembrance from last week in verse 19. And because it's a bit of a long sermon, why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? For our scripture reading this morning in Deuteronomy, and stretch a little bit, Deuteronomy in reverence for the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. Follow along as I read Moses telling the story to this new generation about the old generation and what happened as they traveled from Mount Sinai to attempt to take the promised land. Then we set out from Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe. They turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and spied it out. Then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us, and they brought us back a report and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. Yet... You were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, The peoples are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim here, there. Then I said to them, Do not be shocked, nor fear them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, Just as a man carries his son and all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. I'm getting some feedback, so if you could tone that down, that would be great. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As Moses reflects upon the failure and the sin of the first generation, he really aptly sums up really the source of the problem in verse 32 of your text. Look at it. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God. The meaning of that Hebrew word translated trust, according to one scholar, means to make oneself secure in the Lord or to rely completely on God. 
What a great definition for trust, to make oneself secure and to rely completely on God. Wonderful definition of trust. And this is what Moses is preaching to the children of Israel and to the people of God today. We ought to forsake fear. You're standing there. You're poised to take the land. We've got to forsake fear, and we've got to exercise faith in the God who has made these good promises to us. This is the whole message of the book, and this is the whole message for our Christian lives today. We ought to forsake fear and exercise faith in the God who has made these promises. And Moses wants to tell us how to do this by stirring us up by way of reminder. He wants us to remember three essential realities in our text. Three essential realities. First, he reminds us and the people of Israel of the promises to believe. The promises to believe in verses 19 through 25. Look at verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. So, after the instructions that were given on Mount Sinai, and, and we learned last week that they were the instructions that we needed to be reminded of were really instructions about leadership for the people of God. You've got to move on the promises of God, but you've got to move with some structure, he says. And so this, this was really all that was accounted by way of remembrance for the time on Mount Sinai, that whole year. This is what Moses wants us to remember. So now he says, okay, let's recount the time where you set off from Mount Sinai. You went north and how you wandered for eight days. It should have been an eight-day wilderness wandering. It was 40. It should have been 11 days. Sorry, 11 days. And they were to come up from Sinai through that wilderness, and they were to arrive right in Kadesh Barnea, which was kind of the southern entrance to the promised land. And that's where they were poised. And he just talks about that really difficult journey through the great and terrible wilderness. So they come to this place called Kadesh Barnea, and look at verse 20. I said to you, you have come. There they've arrived, they've made it. Remember, it took 11 days, it wasn't that bad, 11 days. You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. And so in saying that they've come to the hill country of the Amorites, they said, he's basically saying you come to Kadesh Barnea right at the edge of the promised land. We can take the land through the southern interest. You've come to the hill country of the, of the land of Amorites, which is really Moses' way of saying, you've come to the land that God has promised. You've arrived there, and the text says in verse 20, which the Lord our God is about to give us. Now, that description of God in the Hebrew text says really this. It, it's, a, it's a title for God. The Lord, He is one giving. The Lord, the present tense giving one, is about to deliver us into this land. And it's even more certain than God having a name, the giving one, present tense. It's more certain than that. Moses reminds them that 40 years earlier of that there was a magnificent promise made in verse 21. He reminds them, see, that's a, stir them up a little. Behold, let me, let me remind you again. Verse 21, see, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not, be fe do not fear or be dismayed. So he gives them a wake-up call. I want you to listen. And he says, and I don't like the translation that, that we're reading here because it's, not, it, it's really the verb forgiven. See, the Lord your God, now listen to this, the Lord your God has given the land before you. It's called a perfect tense for you 
English and Greek scholars out there, which is to say that this is a state of givenness. The title of God is one giving, and He's going to do it because that's a title for Him. He's the giving one. And He said the land, it already, they haven't entered it yet, it already, perfect tense, has been given. It's done. It's finished. Move on the promises of God. These are certain promises. You can take them to the bank. God has said it. God, that settles it. And by the way, God's going to do it. That's pretty certain. Feelings were real. Watch that. Feelings are real. Feelings are understandable. It was real for fear. It was real for Israel. Moses gently says, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. And he says the word dismayed, and it so resonated with me, and it will resonate with you. The word dismayed, one scholar says, is to be emotionally distraught. It's fear and, are you ready? Emotional depression in the Hebrew text. This is feelings. We're enemies to the people of God poised to take that promised land, that given land. It was given by the giving one. And this, the fearful people then asked for some spies to be sent from that south end of the land to check out the land. Now, listen carefully. The issue that they wanted resolved, this is important, the issue that the, they wanted resolved as they sent the 12 spies were an issue of how are we going to enter the land? What approach should we take tactically? Which cities first? What's our direction? That was what they were after. And so we come to the account of the spies then in verses 22 through 25. And I look at this account as God's kindness. He's so kind to us. He gives us these promises. My very title says I will keep these promises. I've promised it with a past tense. Okay, you want evidence? Fine. It's a confirmation of the promises here. It's the kindness of God. So look at it. Let's just read it quickly. Then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way. See that? To bring back to us the word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. What's our tactical approach here? The thing pleased me, in verse 23, and I, so that's Moses saying, I'm fine with this, and God was fine with this. If you compare Numbers chapter 13, the thing pleased me, and I took 12 of your men, one from each tribe. They turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. Then, then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us, and they brought us back a report and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. So what is the best direction to take? The issue is, the, uh, 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 is an issue of direction. So hold on to that thought for later on. And the spies are to come back, the, the 12 spies, and they're to give a report, tactical report, about the land and bring word to the people. And everybody thought it was a good idea. And I love that God allowed a confirmation of the promises. And the spies, I don't know if you noticed it, but they were able to get in and get out without harm. And they were able to actually get all the way to the valley of Eshcol, which is quite deep in the Amorite hill country. They were able to get there, and they were able to secure evidence of what? Huge grapes, evidence that indeed this was a good land. In fact, the translation from the Hebrew in verse 25 is this. It's very emphatic. Good is the land 
which Yahweh, Yahweh our God, is one giving to us. Yahweh, the giving one. Again, the same title of God, the giving one. It's a good land. So the promises of God are confirmed to be good, just as God had said. And God himself reminds them that, no, I'm going to be the one giving this land to you. I'm going to confirm this. It is flowing with milk and honey, huge and luscious grapes, for God gives good gifts to his people. God is the one giving. He's already given it. Now let's move. Let's take the land. The future is certain. The promises are confirmed to be good. The future is not something to dread. It is God's good gift to his people. So Moses reminds them of the promises to believe here in verses 19 through 20, we have the facts of God's good promises and, and, and even confirmation here of the facts. The problem is when the facts and even evidence of the facts of who God is and His good promises, it, the problem is that those facts collide with fear. And that's where we turn then to the second um, aspect that Moses, second essential reality that Moses reminds us of in this. And hang on, get ready. The presentation, then, secondly, the promises to believe, secondly, the presentation of unbelief. Moses says, Let me remind you what this looks like so we don't do it again. Verses 26 through 28, you know the story. And in this text, there are four ways that unbelief presents itself. You say, I don't know if I believe or not. Let me show you four ways from the text that will help you know if you are currently believing in God. I am currently believing in God. So this is the presentation of unbelief. Number one, the first way unbelief presents itself is through grumbling. Grumbling. Look at it. Let's just see that how the text unfolds this. Verse 26. Okay, yet, now we're picking it up again, yet you are not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Verse 27. And you grumbled in your tents and said... Because the Lord hates us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Unbelief presents itself in our lives first and foremost by grumbling and complaining. And when we grumble and when we complain, we grumble and complain against God. It's lacking gratitude and thanksgiving. So if you find yourself, and I find myself grumbling and complaining, understand that at that moment you are not believing God. Don't sugarcoat your grumbling against God. I sugarcoat my grumbling against God. Grumbling in this passage is rebellion against God. Grumbling is the presentation of unbelief. Now, tears and pain and laments and crying out to God and being honest with God about your shame and your sin and your struggles and your suffering and all of that, and then, and then by His grace standing upon His Word and saying, but even if I am, though you slay me, I'm still going to trust you, Lord, and crying out and lamenting like the psalmist is not grumbling against God. Don't put yourself in that category. I'm talking about the stuff we do. That's different. That grumbling is a presentation of unbelief. 
unbelief presents itself as grumbling and complaining. The second way unbelief presents itself is by lying. First grumbling, second lying. Second way that unbelief presents itself is through lying. We grumble about different things, and the people of Israel grumbled about different things. You know why? Well, the text tells us. You know why? We'll see it in the text. I want you to find it in verse 27, the why. Here's why we and they grumble. Because they were listening to lies about the promises and especially about the God of the promises. Just like the great liar, the deceiver, right, did to Eve. Has God really said this? Look at the content of their grumbling. Uh, Where is it? Verse 27. Okay. And you grumbled in your tents and said, watch this, because the Lord hates us. Really? That's why God rescued you from slavery. He hates you. That's why God parted the Red Sea and plundered the Egyptian, because He hates you. That's why God wants to bring you into the promised land because He hates you so that the Amorites will soundly thrash you. There's a play on words here in the Hebrew text. You say, you say Moses, that Yahweh our God is the one giving the land to us. Well, I'll tell you why he has brought us into Egypt. Not to give us the land. He's brought us out of the Egypt to give us to the hand of the Amorites. The truth is that God loved the people of Israel. The truth is that God loves us with an everlasting love, an everlasting covenant-keeping love. And really, the book of Deuteronomy is a book remembering the love of God for Israel, reminding them of that. Let me give you just one passage. We'll get to it in our next sermon, but listen to this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37. Here's the real reason why He rescued them from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37. Because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants after them, and He personally brought you from Egypt by His great power. It was love that rescued them from Egypt, not hatred. It was a distortion of the character of God. It was lying about who God is, what He has done. Lying about who God is, lying about what He has done is at the very heart of our grumbling and at the very heart of our unbelief. We listen to lies about the character of God Himself. He hates us. Did that, those three words not pop out at you? in reading this passage, he hates us? Believing a lie. Brothers and sisters, listen, this is so helpful. What lie are you, am I believing about God that is causing you to trust in your own resources and is hindering you from obeying him today. What lie is it? It's going to be a lie. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. God doesn't understand. God isn't with me. God doesn't love me or I wouldn't be suffering and feeling like I feel. God has abandoned me. Underneath the grumbling is faith. Unfortunately, it's believing lies. Call it reverse faith. Believing lies about God. So, 
The first way unbelief presents is through grumbling, and then in kind of a source of that. The second way which unbelief presents itself is connected to lying about the character of God, which is connected to the third way that unbelief presents itself, which is found in verse 28, and that is blame shifting. We're going to have to get quickly through the bad news here. Verse 28, where can we go up? They, this is the people of Israel talking to Mo, the spies and Moses. Where can we go up? Our brethren, <laughs> our brethren have made our hearts melt. Did you notice that? Saying, here's how they did it. The people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to the heavens. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. It's very emphatic in the Hebrew text. Put up right up front. Our brothers, they have caused, listen to this. This is the Hebrew text. Our brothers, they have caused our hearts to strongly melt. They did it. They did it through saying these three things. And we don't need to emphasize them too much. People are too big. Cities are too small. There's giants. The same giants were the people group that led to Goliath of old. So Moses says, okay, we agree we should send out the spies. God underlined it. Now I'll tell you what happened. Our brothers have caused our hearts to melt. They did it. It's like Adam did in the garden. He said, you know, the woman you gave me, God, to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. And Eve, she blamed the snake. Shifting blame for why we are grumbling, why we are believing a lie, why our situation is different and we get to do it. Why we will not obey God? It's someone else's fault. It's my wife's fault. My husband's fault. It's the church's fault. It's my parents' fault. God, through Moses, is saying it's our heart's fault. We're listening to lies. We're not believing in our God. Now we get to the fourth way unbelief presents itself. It ties it all together. Fourth way is fearing. Fearing. We know that the ultimate problem is the fear of man because Moses says in response in verse 29, then I said to them, and he says it again, and he said it before, his answer to this is this, do not be shocked nor fear them. That's what he addresses. He addresses the fear of man that underlines and underpins every enemy of faith in this passage. Nothing has changed, has it? The fear of man is still an enemy of faith in God. When we fear man, we cannot have faith in God. And the fear of man is so respectable today. Let me tell you why. Because it's packaged as caring about stuff. It's packaged as Worry and anxiety, which is packaged by the world as another term for responsibility. And so it's a respectable sin, as Jerry Bridges says. And yet, that's what the ploy of the enemy is, to lie about the underpinning of it all. It's not respectable. It's fearing man. As one pastor said, and I think he's right on, listen to this, anxiety blots out memory. The book of Deuteronomy, I think, was in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ at every turn. And as he exhorted his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says this to the disciples of Christ in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for one cent? 
And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Do the disciples of Jesus Christ struggle with unbelief? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you struggle with unbelief? Do I struggle? Do the people of Israel struggle? How does Jesus combat the grumbling, the believing lies, the blame shifting, and the fear of man, which sums up the ministry of the disciples of Jesus Christ? At least before Pentecost. How does Jesus combat this? He gives them the truth. How does Moses combat this on the edge of the promised land? He gives them the truth, which leads us then to the third and final aspect that will help us prepare for the Lord's table, and this is the good part. Number three, he wants wants us to remember the promises of God. He wants us to remember the reality of the presentation of unbelief. And finally and gloriously, he wants them to remember that what they need is the presence of God. The presence of God. This is found in verses 29 through 33. And I just want to highlight, I can't, well, let me read verse 28. Look at it. Where can we go up? Watch this. In the Hebrew, our brethren, very emphatic, our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger, the cities are fortified and large, and besides we saw the sons of Anna came. Then I said to them, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God, and it's up front for an emphasis. They're going to bring their loud part of their speech, and the loud part is our brothers. And God, and Moses says in his preaching, he says, the Lord your God is the one who goes before you. He himself will fight before you. It's meant to find a, just an exact parallel to their, our brothers caused us. And he says, our, your God, Yahweh your God, he's the one that will go with you. And I want you to notice that, but I also want you to notice, this, is so, this was so helpful to me. God is not a genie. We put a little bit of money and get a little help for our feelings. No, God is a God that we trust and love in our relationship with. Listen to this. Moses is not trying to build your faith in the promises of God as much as he is trying to build your faith in God. That was huge for me to see in this passage. I can't emphasize how important theology is and how central it is right between the eyes to the Christian life. The right view of God is the most important thing about us. And this is what Moses does to stir them up by way of reminder. And he gives three aspects of the presence of God in this passage. Number one, God is present as our warrior. God is present as our warrior. Look at verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Israel, when you enter in from the south to take the land, God will fight for the advantage of you. Just like he did in the past, before your eyes, with the ten plagues and the plundering of Egypt. And God led you out, and he parted the Red Sea, God indeed was before you. He was a mighty warrior who fought for you. He shattered the enemy. In fact, in a, in a sense, you don't need to fight. You need to follow behind the fighter. Stay close to him. And of course, it's a football illustration, which doesn't work for half of you. But listen, you know, in football, when you got the fullback, you got the running back, in the old days especially, and he's running and he's huge and he's going to run straight ahead and you just get right behind him and he plows his way forward for the touchdown into the promised land. That's the picture here. Don't you see? You're not alone. God is present. Is your warrior. He's going before you. He's going to fight for you. Stay close to him. Don't you think God knows how to win the battle? Does God lose? 
He's with us and He fights for us. He's the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? He's the Lord of armies. He's our warrior. And He doesn't send you out to battle. He's in the battle with you. He's in front of you. He Himself is fighting on your behalf. And so this is what Moses is doing. This is what we need to do. This is pastoral ministry, giving myself and you theological smelling salts. I need to remind you about the truth of God. God hates you? Really? No. He's with you. He fights for you. He's given the land to you. It's as good as done. God is omnipotent. He is present in his omnipotence to fight for us. And Moses says it, God is present as our warrior, number one. Number two, he reminds them that God is present as our father. God is present as our father. Look at verse 31. God is present as our Father. I love this. Verse 31, and in the wilderness. So now they're in the wilderness, right? A bunch of rebels. In the wilderness. But in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son. In all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. So Moses reminds them God is present and fighting for them, but now God is present as our Father, even in the wandering of the wilderness. God was there. God was there with those sinful, grumbling rebels, taking those incompetence up in his arms as a daddy and holding them. God was taking care of his firstborn son, Israel. And they saw this in all the way, the text says, year after year, how God put his loving arms around them as a father. He didn't just go out in front of them. He held them in his arms, as a father would carry a son who was unable to move a weak son, a disabled son, all those years. Isn't that wonderful that we have a tender father like that? full of mercy and grace. We didn't deserve, we don't deserve that. Israel didn't deserve that. They hadn't earned that. He carries us. The other day, I can't remember, I think it was maybe at Pastor Don's family gathering on his land, Don and Naomi's. It was dark out. I was sitting around as I'm found to do from time to time sitting around the campfire. Barry Wester was there, and uh, I don't know who was there with us, but I'll never forget it because he was sitting there and draped over his shoulders, sleeping, was Abram. And Barry just said, because I, I don't know if someone asked him about it or if he needed to explain himself. But at that point, in the dark, he said, no, that's what we do. It's, it's just really relaxing for him. Abram has some disabilities. To be over my shoulders, his daddy's shoulders. He slept there. Such a tender picture of this passage of a loving Father where we can actually rest right there as He carries us. Psalm 46, verse 10, relax and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So what is Moses doing here? 
He's countering the lie. God hates us, really, really. God loves us like a father loves a son. And this is the theme of the love of God that will be developed over and over, over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. And what a picture of God's presence. You can't be closer to God than in the arms of God your Father. Him carrying you. What a truth of His love for us and His security for us, His provision for us, His protection for us. So in order to believe... We've got to get our mind and heart straight upon the truth about our God, the God of the promises. He is present. He is present as our warrior. He is present as our Father. And finally, and gloriously, and I think emphatically, and where Moses really and ultimately wants to go, He is present as our guide. Verse 32, but for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God. Now, listen to the description of God in verse 33, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day and to show you the way in which you should go. What did they really want to know? Why did they send out those 12 spies? We saw it. I want you to notice that. That's how we have to read our Bibles very carefully. What should, what should be the route What is the way we should go in verse 22? What are the cities we should take first? They were really concerned about this sort of thing, and rightly so. But notice again their question in verse 28. Where are we going up? It looks like a good land. I like the grapes. I tasted the grapes. But Moses stirs them up to remember God's presence as a guide. He is the way, the truth. And the life, you see. He's going before them. He's going to guide them. He'll direct them on the correct way. God will do this. He'll order your steps, Israel. He'll tell you where to camp on Monday. He'll tell you where to camp on Tuesday. He'll tell you what to camp on Wednesday. And the same is true for your next week. It's very emphatic. I love how emphatic this is. In your English Bible, it says, in fire by night and cloud by day. The Hebrew text is in fire by night to show you the way in which you should go and cloud by day. Therefore, highlighting the middle part of that, which is this, to show you the way that you should go. That's where he ends this passage because that's the very question that above all other questions was disturbing them. And that God and Moses are very kind to actually address their fears with the truth. So, God himself will be their guide. And so we remember that, didn't we? The pillar of, right? The pillar of fire by night and the glory cloud with the bursting lights out of the clouds by day. This was the Shekinah glory of God, the visible presence of God. What a blessing. The visible presence of God would go before them as their guide And show them the way. And anxiety had blurred their memory when for 40 years God had not failed to direct their paths. Don't you remember Israel? And I would say, don't you remember, church, that God has been our guide? He's been present to guide us every step of the way. But there's verse 32. In spite of all this, You did not trust in the Lord your God. You did not believe. Why? Because you're afraid of so many things, so many questions. They're legitimate questions. How do we know what to do? Do we have the ability to overcome this huge challenge? One pastor helped me with these questions. His name is Fernando. How do we we know he will fight for us? What assurance do I have that God will really look after me? And we are afraid of so many things. Afraid of election results. Afraid our kids might not follow Jesus. Afraid the finances will run out. Afraid the cancer will take us. Afraid that we will be rejected by people. So many things. But we are to remember and we are to believe that God is present 
as our warrior. He is present as our father, and he is present as our guide. And as we get ready here soon to celebrate the Lord's table, we need to remember that the Shekinah glory is here. Better than the pillar of fire is now. Do you understand that? Well, let me unpack this. The Shekinah glory of God is with us in Christ. The Shekinah glory of God was a faithful guide of Israel of old. But because of their rebellion, the glory of God went from the holy place and the holy of holies and made its way out and departed from the Mount of Olives. And for 400 silent years, the Shekinah glory had departed until that night outside of Bethlehem. The Shekinah glory was back again. The shepherds were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And what is his name? His name is Emmanuel, the very present one, God with us. And then he grew, Emmanuel grew. He lived by faith in the God of the promises. Every moment of every waking hour, he earned the righteousness that we have failed to live. And then he went to the cross and he died upon that cross for our grumbling, for our blame shifting, for our lying, and for our fear. And he took of that upon himself. And then he rose from the dead. The shame and sin had been gone. And he rose and he appeared to his disciples. Oh, those scaredy cats who ran. And he appears to them and he says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I got this. Go, therefore, and make, the disip- make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the day, even to the end of the age. And it seems so scary to take the gospel to the nations, nations that kill Christians, nations where the name of Christ has not been named, the spiritual giants, the spiritual fortified cities. It seems so scary not to put your pronouns on that email. But God is with us, the Shekinah glory in Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God himself is present in the person of Jesus Christ. So our future is secure. It's present tense. God is one giving it. He will protect us by faith until the end, until he'll get us home in Revelation 21 to the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven, from God made ready his bride adorned for her husband so that God will dwell with his people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. If you haven't got that yet. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there were no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And here's the question that I have for you from this passage. Do you believe it? Are we going to believe in the midst of our suffering and our trials, our ever-present warrior, father, and guide, I hope so, because it's the most important question before all of us today. For Tozier was right. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let us pray.